You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now this is the greatest commandment, the statutes and the rules, that Yahweh your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear Yahweh your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as Yahweh the God of your fathers has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is Yahweh your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For Yahweh your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of Yahweh your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put Yahweh your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of Yahweh your God, and his testimonies, and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that Yahweh swore to give to your fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as Yahweh has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And Yahweh showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear Yahweh our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God, as he has commanded us. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, 
for episode 653 of this podcast. Today is Monday, July 3rd, 2023. It is the day before Independence Day, the day that we here in the United States, hopefully others around the world, along with us, at least in spirit, celebrate becoming our own country. Back in 1776, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, there was more to it than just declaring, but that was a start. You can't have a country if you don't declare a country. There's more to it, but you got to have at least that. Well, so also, right? So also here as we're reading through Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's more to it than just declaring that you have a country in the case of Israel. As they're about to come into the promised land, they're about to come into Canaan, and God is going to, as it says here, thrust out all their enemies from before them, just as he promised. There's more to it than just declaring. There's also a active piece. There is a doing that is needed. It's not just a saying. It's not just a declaring. There's a need to behave as if they are the country they say they are. They have to actually be obeying God. If they're going to say that God is their God, if they're going to say that Yahweh is their God, they have to obey him. They can't just say, oh yes, Lord, Lord, and not do what he says. How would that work? You can't say, Yahweh, bless our country, and also worship other gods and not worship Yahweh as God. So also for us today as believers, if we say, Lord, Lord, but we don't do what Jesus tells us to do, we don't obey, we don't really actually believe, we don't actually really have faith. Now, it's not the behavior that saves us. We are not saved by works, lest any man should boast. But then also, too, we're not saved by our own faith in an abstract sense, in a vacuum, as though we can boast in our faith either. And we're not saved, per se, by good doctrine in the abstract, in a vacuum, separated out, autonomous, all by its lonesome, as though we can boast in that either. All such boasting is foolishness. And actually, even to some extent, I would say some of the debates, some of the debates that are held around these questions are foolishness. They are competing boasts. One person says, I'm of Paul. Another says, I'm of Apollos. One person says, faith without works is dead. And the other one says, but we're not saved by works. And they get into boasts and counter boasts and quibbling and arguing. And it's not either or. According to James and according to Paul, if you take all scripture as God breathed, and if you look at the whole counsel of God and what is commanded, and what is required. It is not just trust and faith in an immaterial sense, in an abstract sense. It's also obedience that comes from that place of faith. Now, if you have obedience per se, technically, but there's no love for Yahweh, your God, then it's nothing. If you have obedience to the command to love your neighbor as you love yourself, but there's no love actually in it, It's just going through the motions. It's just behaving in a dutiful way out of obligation, and it's cold and it's lifeless. If it's actually selfish ambition working itself out, well then, 
Can that kind of faith save either? No, by no means. So it has to come from a place of love. But that is to say, too, we don't just say in the abstract, we love God, but then pay no attention to what he's called us to, what he's given us in the way of testimonies, in the way of promises, in the way of commands. If we say that we love him, but we don't pay any heed to what he's called us to, we don't give any thought to that because we want to really emphasize and play up the grace of God, well then, we are in error. We're being foolish at best, we're being wicked at worst, we're being lawless in the most dire of cases, and that doesn't honor God, that's not what he's called us to. We're not supposed to be lawless, even though it's not by the law that we're justified, we're not supposed to be lawless, and proof of that is the previous chapters of Deuteronomy here. Where were you? Have the Ten Commandments, I asked the question here in our recent episode over the weekend, whether the Democratic Party is compatible with the Ten Commandments. It was just our last episode. I published it on Saturday. I asked the question, which of these Ten Commandments can the Christian just completely ignore and maybe even systematically flaunt and disobey and still call themselves a Christian? If a political party makes it their platform to celebrate and affirm and demand the disobeying of these Ten Commandments. Which of these Ten Commandments is it no big deal for you to vote for that political party in relation to? And God will just say, yeah, that's fine. You're under grace. Do what you want. Uh, Really none of them. If you get down to the spirit of the law, maybe in some of the particulars, like with regards to the Sabbath observance, there are exceptions to the rule. Just like there is a rule, there are exceptions. But we don't say that because there are exceptions, therefore there is no rule and we should be disorderly, we should be chaotic, we should be lawless. No, that's not what God has called us to. Even in the New Testament, we see the assurance that those who practice such things, and there's a list that's given a number of times, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so what you could have is you could have, apart from those passages, People saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, but I also am a sexually immoral person. I also am an adulterer. I also am an idolater. I'm also covetous and envious and wrathful, and I also bear false witness against others on a regular basis. But no, I'm a Christian, and I don't like that you're telling me what I'm doing is wrong or sinful or that I shouldn't do it. I don't like that. So don't, right? Don't, don't tell me that I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Don't tell me that I need to stop it. I need to repent. I'm under grace. That's cheap grace. That is cheap grace. And that is lawlessness. And God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. But here, right here in Deuteronomy chapter six, we have this beautiful, robust picture of family life, of community life, of a national identity that is all bound up in Yahweh being their God. And so you have this expectation, which Moses tells them to plan for and to prepare for and to be ready for. When your son asks you in time to come, verse 20, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And so what we have to understand here is it was okay 
it was, in a certain sense, good, as in the will of God, was good. His sovereign plan was still good. His character was still good, but his promises, his purposes were still good when Israel was in Egypt. But that doesn't mean that what the Egyptians were doing was good. That doesn't mean that God himself was doing these things to Israel, but he was permitting these things to happen and he worked them to the good. Now, some will argue with me on that and they'll say, oh, no, no, no. If we believe in a sovereign God, then we have to say that even if God himself is doing these things to Israel because he's allowing them to happen, God is still good. And I say, well, if God is doing these things, that is the question. And I'm not ready to overemphasize the either or of God's sovereignty or man being accountable, responsible for his choices. And I'm, again, as I've said before, I am not a Calvinist. I am certainly not a hyper-Calvinist. I think the hyper-Calvinists cause a great deal of trouble. I think they are bulls in China shops who relish smashing things. And we should call them out for it when they do. I think the seeker-friendly folks, on the other hand, are and have a tendency to be, uh, in the worst moments, rather oily and rather manipulative and rather too easily either leading others astray or being led astray themselves. But that doesn't mean that you just take the opposite, right? You take the opposite view to its extreme and then that therefore gets a pass and that's good. No, no, no. That's not wise. That's simple. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for war, there's a time for peace. What you don't say is because there are times for war, therefore it's always wartime. You should always be in a wartime, war-making mindset. So also, you don't look at war and say, oh, there's such awful, awful things that happen in war. And therefore, it should only ever be peace. We should just demand, insist on peace. If we seek peace and pursue it, we'll always have peace. And that's what we want. And we know that that will be the eventual circumstance. And so therefore, let's live like it right now. And let's say, peace, peace. No, 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 that's not wise. That's simple. So also on an individual basis, with regards to the interpersonal relationships that we have with others, you might say, well, it's good, right? Hugs are good. Embracing others when they're suffering is good. And so we want to hug those who are in pain and they're hurting. And what you need to understand in what Solomon is writing and the reason and the purpose for it is there is a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. So there are times where you probably shouldn't be comforting this person who is hurting, whether because there's a danger there to you and other people in comforting them, you might be enabling whether because they're being manipulative and they're actually trying to sucker you into underwriting their folly and their sin or participating in it, joining them in it. They're going to play on your sympathy and they're going to put themselves in situations again and again that are self-destructive just so you will come to the rescue and prove that you actually care about them. There's a time to refrain from embracing when someone around us is suffering because they keep on choosing folly. They keep on choosing stubbornly to do the wicked thing, the ungodly thing, the unwise thing, despite having been warned not to. There's a time to refrain from embracing. But there is a time to embrace. And if you look at the bad examples where comforting somebody might actually be enabling their bad behavior, and you say, well, I don't want to do that. Therefore, I'm never going to embrace those who are suffering. That's not wise. That is not wise. If you look at 
the situations where people are uncharitable and they're always blaming the person who is suffering for their own misery. And they say, well, I'm just never going to embrace anybody. I'm never going to comfort anybody because sometimes it is just that they made bad choices. You know, like the John Wayne quote, life is hard. It's harder when you're stupid. Yeah, that's my motto, right? Life is harder when you're stupid. And so if people are having a harder life, I am going to presume it's because they were stupid and I'm not going to comfort them. No, I'm going to give them tough love always ever. No, that's not what we're called to. Wisdom and righteousness has to do with when and how and why, because it's not always in all circumstances, just for any old reason you can come up with. Are you being obedient to God because you love God? That's the first question. And that clarifies quite a lot, actually. That will change the character of our engagement immeasurably, immensely, throughout, from the core outward, the way we talk to the people around us, the way we engage with opportunities and threats will be dramatically overhauled. If at the core of it is, I love God and I want to honor him and I want to obey him and I want to trust him and I want to rest in him. If that's what drives, as it's supposed to, our engagement in life, our participation in life, our investment of our talents, if that's what drives it, we are going to go to the word and we're going to study to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. If love for our neighbor, love for our brother as we love ourselves is therefore downstream, it can't be co-equal and it can't be preeminent before love for God. But if it's downstream, right, if it's subordinated to our love for God, because God calls us to, he tells us to obey. And one of the things generally speaking, that we're supposed to obey is loving our neighbor, made in God's image like we are, as we love ourselves. If that is subordinated to and a result of loving God as he calls us to with all our being, with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, then we're going to go to the word and we're going to look for instruction from the Most High. We're going to ask God for wisdom in difficult cases, in difficult circumstances. We're going to go to God with our problems and ask the Lord, what should I do? And what should I not do? What would be good for me to engage like here? And what would be best for me to not do? I want to be blameless. And so I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I also don't want to say nothing when I should say something here. I don't want to do the wrong thing, but I also want to be active if I'm supposed to do something here, but I want to do the right thing. And this is where, too, the church is supposed to be. Your fellow saints are supposed to be coming alongside and providing a sounding board. Sometimes the answer to the prayer, asking God for wisdom, is to be found in asking a brother or sister in the Lord, who also has the Holy Spirit, who also studies diligently to show themselves an approved workman who need not be ashamed, asking them. And then the answer to the prayer, asking for wisdom, is that they give us wise counsel. They give us good insight. They give us encouragement where we need to be encouraged. They give us maybe even a little bit of pushback where we need to have some correction. We need to be told, oh, no, no, that's not correct. I think that thing you're saying is going too far or it's not going far enough. But here, right here in Deuteronomy 6, these people of God, these people who have been delivered out of hard bondage, 
They're being told it was a good thing that God delivered them out of the hard bondage. And you might say, yes, the character of God, the character of his purposes and his promises was good even when they were in the midst of slavery. Just like Joseph being sold into slavery as an individual man, God worked to the good. It's not as though what the Egyptians were doing was good because God worked it to the good. And it's not as though, and here's a major bone I have to pick with the hyper-Calvinists at a minimum, it's not as though God himself was doing the wrong things that Joseph's brothers were doing to him just because sovereignly he permitted those things to be done. It's not as though God himself was doing to the children of Israel what the Egyptians were doing to them just because in his sovereign plans and purposes, he allowed Egypt to do those things. Now, again, hyper-Calvinists at least, but I think also some Calvinists who don't think that they're hyper-Calvinists, but maybe have a tendency and a temptation to go there, they'll push back and they'll say, oh, but that's a low view of God. You don't have a high view of God if you only believe that God allowed certain things to happen. You have to go the whole way and say, God actually did these things. He caused these things to happen. And I say, Again, I think that's simple. I think that's foolish. I think at best, it's an unwise, illogical, unreasonable way to read these passages and think about them. But at worst, you can have villains who sneak in, wolves in sheep's clothing, who can sneak into the church under the guise of being very severe and very harsh with the saints on that premise And they can say, oh, but this is actually God doing this to you. And that's a recipe for abuse and mistreatment and every kind of vile practice when that happens. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it up close. It's been a few years, but I've seen it. I've heard about it secondhand. I know a lot of people who have suffered under that kind of a situation. And unfortunately, and very disturbingly and very frustratingly, I know many, many, many more in the broader circle that surrounded this one individual, this one very, very toxic, abusive individual who was a pastor and who had a discernment ministry, so-called, online. There were a lot of allies of his and a lot of fellow travelers of his who either said nothing, all the while privately harboring reservations that they later on down the road, years later, when everything was safe to comment on because he had totally fallen into scandal. Then they came forward and they said, oh yeah, we we always kind of knew, right? We always kind of wondered about him. Yeah, but you didn't say anything publicly. You should have said something publicly. You should have walked out. You should have rebuked him publicly and had nothing to do with him because he was a false teacher. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing and you knew it. And now that you're saying you knew it back then, and now that we look back and we see that you didn't do anything to warn others around you, you didn't sufficiently distance yourself, shame on you. You should repent of that. You sinned in not having called others to separate themselves from him, in not warning others who were falling under his sway to stand back, run. And then there were others too, others who helped him to have a larger platform and a larger audience. And they, insofar as they thought they were also going to raise their own profile, they behaved in a selfish way, in an irresponsible way. And then what they did when he absolutely soiled himself for all to see once and for all, 
and was defrocked and lost his so-called discernment ministry, what a lot of those cats did is they then did the same thing that the ones who were silent the whole time did. Although it's less convincing when you actually had him on your podcast, when you actually shared a conference stage with him, when you actually were directing other people to go and check out his material. It's less convincing when you do the thing where you say, oh yeah, I had reservations all this time. Ah, well then it's a very curious thing that you were encouraging others to listen to him and to follow him. Very curious. And so I see that. I see the tendency among far too many of the very conservative, reformed American Christians to either not have a stern enough response to abusive twisting of scriptures regarding God's sovereignty, regarding predestination, regarding election. They either, in too many cases, have no effective response to it, or they have actively enabled and defended abusers on the basis of the claim that, well, that's what our theology requires. Now, let me clarify, too, something I'm not saying. I want to make very, very clear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is, if you're a Calvinist, if you're reformed in your theology, therefore you are this abusive person or you're an enabler of abusers. No, no. No, all of the passages that are referenced by prominent reformed theologians, those biblical passages are true and they are all scripture breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. But that's just it. Every good work. We're supposed to be equipped for every good work, not deeds of darkness, not being abusive and malicious and envious and wrathful and bitter and caustic. That's not what we're supposed to be equipped for. And so if you have somebody saying, here's this passage about God's sovereignty, and it means that God actually ultimately is the one doing what is being done to Israel and Egypt, or God is the one actually doing the things that are being done to Joseph just because God is sovereign and also he's working things to the good, but then that means he's also responsible for the evil, and therefore you're going to get whatever I give you, however I treat you, however I talk to you, however severe or harsh I am to you, however mean, however derogatory, however insulting, however severe, you're going to take that or else I'm going to question whether you're even a Christian, whether you're even saved. No, 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 no. Reject that. But you can reject that and still have Reformed theology. I'm convinced. I know Reformed Christians, I know Calvinists who have a Reformed understanding of election, predestination, God's sovereignty, God's grace, who are not that way. And so I know it's possible to not be that way. But what I would love to see is more of the Reformed crowd in America similarly know that it's possible to be Reformed and not that way. <laughs> I would love to see that. And we need to see that. We need the church to be on its best behavior. That's what we're called to. And it's not our best behavior when we're severe and harsh and tearing one another down, especially. You know, it's one thing when it's the world, when it's those who are outside of Christ, who are not believers. And we should feel a tremendous amount of pity and empathy and sadness for them. 
And we should warn them soberly. We should warn them persistently. We should call them to repentance. We should invite them to be partakers in the divine nature through the blood of Christ, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But when we're talking to fellow saints, we're supposed to be building them up and we can't forget that. We're supposed to be looking for ways to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We can't forget that. We're supposed to be expectant that God has prepared good works for us from before the foundations of the world, good works for us to walk in, and that he enables us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He guides us and leads us in the light of his word. We have to believe that. And if we get too hung up on our own depravity, our own sinfulness, our own wickedness, our own folly, our own immaturity, And more to the point, if we are only always ever reminding one another of that, then where is the edification? Where is the building up? Where is the encouraging? Where is the spurring one another on towards love and good deeds? To be sure, the dose makes the poison. And there is a certain amount of reminding one another of that sinful nature that needs to be reckoned with, watched out for. There's a certain amount of that that's appropriate, but the dose makes the poison also means there's a certain proportion and quantity that would be not balanced and it would not be bringing the whole counsel of God to bear on these things. And so what we want is we want as Christians to be looking at passages like Deuteronomy 6, which are referenced in the New Testament as well. Jesus answers the question of which is the greatest commandment. Referencing Deuteronomy chapter 6 We have to come to passages like this and be thinking about joy that can be complete, but has to exist in the first place in order to be made complete. The big idea is not just to not sin, it's to obey. And then you have the joy of your salvation. Don't just, right, don't just keep coming back again and again and again to, hey, you guys are awful and no good and rotten and you keep disobeying. No, no. Balance that with the reminder of the blessing and the reward that there is in obeying. And let's believe, right? Let's believe as Christians that there is a blessing. Like Moses tells to the people of Israel, there is a blessing that comes with obedience. And that blessing, it might not be material at all times or in the time frame that we would like always, And that's where you go back to Philippians chapter four and you learn to be content. As Paul learned to be content, you learn to be content in all circumstances. Whether you have a lot or you have a little, whether you are rich according to the world or you are poor, you learn to be content in whatever circumstances the Lord allows you to be in. And you trust that the Lord will provide and that he has a purpose even for your poverty. Yes, he can show himself rich in mercy when you persevere and you are content and you have a peace in the midst of poverty, absolutely. So also, be content if you are wealthy. Be content. Be content and be a good steward of that as well. And don't turn that into an opportunity, an excuse to complain. I think sometimes that happens, especially with the influence of liberal theology and leftist activism in our day. I think that happens in all too many cases that there's complaining about wealth and about power. And 
it may not be as pious as it sounds at first blush for us to complain about America being wealthy and powerful more so than other countries in the world. It might not be quite so pious. It might be a a form of humble bragging, and it actually might be whining and complaining and grumbling and murmuring from a place of discontentedness. I don't know who is pointing that out, who is bringing that up. I bring it up because I don't hear anybody else saying it, but it's something to ponder. It's something to consider, something we should watch out for, because it may just be making us more vulnerable, more susceptible to the siren song of godless men. And we don't want that, right? We don't want that happening to us that we get suckered in, deceived, taken captive by a vain and human philosophy. We want to be the ones demolishing strongholds, taking every thought captive. That's what we're called to. That's what we're equipped for by the word and by the spirit. That's what we're supposed to be building one another up for as the body of Christ, as the church. But we also don't want it happening on our watch, therefore, that those around us, particularly our fellow saints, are being taken captive themselves by vain and human philosophy instead of taking every thought captive, demolishing every stronghold, every lofty supposition that sets itself up against the testimony of our God, the commands and the promises and the purposes of our God. For instance, for example, for an example of what I'm talking about with being susceptible to the arguments of the radical left and liberal theologians and the new Gnostics, neo-Gnosticism, Planet Moron over at Not the Bee, June 29th, 2023, highlights a article published in The Atlantic titled The Paradox at the Grocery Store with the tagline, what people really need is less choice, not more. Here's the caption on the tweet from The Atlantic, published June 25th, 6.15 a.m. Quote, the variety at the grocery store has become overwhelming. At Flaming Petty writes, quote, single option stores, quote, may be the solution. So here are some excerpts from this piece over at The Atlantic. I'll share them with you. And then I have some thoughts. First up, and I quote, on a recent afternoon while running errands before I had to pick up my kids from school, I froze in the orange juice aisle of a big box store. So many different brands lay before me. Minute Maid, Simply Tropicana, Dole, Florida's Natural, Sunny D, not to mention the niche organic labels. And each brand offered juices with various configurations of pulp, vitamins, and concentrate. The sheer plenitude induced a kind of paralysis. Overwhelmed by the choices on offer, I simply could not make one. I left the store without any orange juice. In conclusion, again, I quote, even when you manage to make a choice, you can find yourself wondering whether you made the right one. Sure, that Chobani strawberry yogurt was pretty good, but what if you'd gotten Oikos instead, or Fage, or those Yoplait whips? Quote, through this lens, what seems like a modern benefit, 100 different kinds of ice cream, every imaginable chip flavor, hot dog buns sliced on the side or on the top can become a bit of a burden. Quote, what we could really use at the grocery store is not more choice, but less. Not freedom to choose, but freedom from choice. (laughs) Here we go, right? Here we go. Quote, in some areas of my life, like picking out clothing, a brand is important to me. I know which label of jeans 
fits me best, but I really don't care about the brand of granola I buy. My groceries don't need to be the absolute best on the market. I just want them to not be the worst. A solid B plus is good enough for me. Quote, mercifully, there exists a portion of the retail sector I think of as the single option store or SOS. The offerings at these establishments are deliberately whittled, typically leaving only a handful of each item to choose from. Quote, it sells the basic grocery staples, citing Aldi, by the way. This is petty, again, from the Atlantic article. Aldi sells the basic grocery staples, whether produce or pasta, while largely eschewing name brands, instead providing its own line of items. Its in-house orange juice brand, Nature's Nectar, makes up the majority of the stock. The only real decision I have to make is how much pulp I want. The time I save from choosing among the pared-down choices means I often find myself speedrunning through the store. All right, now you can read the rest of it. You can read the Atlantic article. You can read the Not the Bee write-up about this with some commentary interspersed throughout. I have some commentary for you. I have some thoughts on this, but first... But first, but first, I'll play for you a very humorous video clip, audio piece that is embedded in this post by Planet Moron. Here it is, Loki's speech on freedom. Cut one, take a listen. Kneel before me. I said... Is not this simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. Not to men like you. <laughs> there are no men like me. There are always men like you. And as you know, right? <laughs> cut, cut, cut. As you know, as the scene continues on. If you've seen the movie, Loki tries to zap this old man who probably based on his age, it's being implied, grew up as a child seeing what the Nazis did to political opponents, seeing what they did to ethnic minorities, seeing what they did to those who they didn't believe were fit to live. Life unworthy of life, as the eugenicists said, as the proponents of scientism and positivism asserted this old gentleman who stands up as the rest of the crowd around him has decided to kneel because they're terrified of whoever this is, right? It happens to be Loki. They don't necessarily know that, but whoever it is that's demanding they kneel, he stands up because he hears where this is going and would rather not, right? He would rather not be a part of that anymore. And it reminds me of the real life old photograph from the days when the National Socialists dominated Germany, the guy standing with his arms folded in the midst of a crowd that's otherwise unified in the Sigheil, 
standing, arms crossed. He's not going to say, Kyle, he's not going to salute this. This is evil. This is corrupt. But what's the claim there? What's the claim now that's being worked in that you actually were made to be subordinated as an individual to the collective good and all of these decisions about supply and demand and the means of production, all of these should be subordinated to the experts who run the state. And that's what's being smuggled in with the very public complaining about so many options with regards to yogurt or orange juice or granola. What's being smuggled in in a very propagandistic way is you should get used to and actually welcome and actually ask for less choice, less options. It'll be good for you. That's what you really want, right? You know what? If an individual wants to shop at Aldi because there are fewer choices, that's fine. You should have the choice to shop at Aldi. You should have the choice to shop somewhere that's going to cater to your analysis paralysis and not wanting so many choices. You should have the option. That's fine. And you know what? Maybe just do a little bit of research enough to pick one you like and just always buy that. And maybe you just take responsibility for filtering out the other ones that you don't want anymore. But when we give up on choice, when we give up on there being options to choose from, what always happens is the single option starts resting on its laurels, knowing you don't have anywhere else to go, and the quality gets less and less. Maybe they were the B-plus option when they had competition. When they don't have competition anymore, pretty soon they're a C-minus. Pretty soon they're a D. Pretty soon, because there's nowhere else for you to go, they start getting lax. And if everything is centrally planned still, even the most casual of mistakes, even the most casual of suggestions that it could be argued would lead to a deterioration in quality or deviation from the standard, are dealt with very severely by the central planners, who at a certain point say the most important thing for the people is that you be shut up, that you be silenced. Kneel, and if you won't kneel, well then, we'll disintegrate you. For the people, of course. For the greater good, of course. That's what's being smuggled in when somebody starts complaining about how many options we have. And again, I say go back to Philippians chapter 4 and look at Paul not just saying he's learned to be content in privation, He also says he's learned to be content with having an abundance. And we as Americans maybe need to get better at being content with and good stewards of having an abundance. And maybe we should look at that as a blessing to be thankful for instead of something to whine about, something to murmur and grumble about. You know, what is it that is said as the people of Israel are being encouraged to come in and take possession of the promised land, a good land, bears reminding here. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, which is to say good foods. But then again, going back to Deuteronomy 6, when Moses warns the people that they're going to live in cities they didn't build, they're going to be eating from vineyards that they didn't plant, they're going to be enjoying the fruits of the labors of peoples who were driven out because they were wicked. Moses says, don't forget when you're full and you're content, and you're happy, and you enjoy this plenty which God is giving to you, don't forget God, or else it will go very badly for you. 
what we should be doing in our day instead of complaining about plenty is we should be remembering God. We should be giving thanks to God in all circumstances and being content. And if we have an abundance, by all means, let's take that abundance and let's bless others in God's name. Let's bless others, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are homeless, those who are naked. But let's do it willingly, cheerfully, on an individual basis, not buying the other lie, which is you need to accept the central planner taking in a compulsory way whatever they think you don't need, whatever they think you don't deserve, and distributing it to somebody else, or maybe keeping it for themselves, as so often happens when the socialists take over, when the communists take over, the people's house or the people's palace or the people's palaces, the people's mansions, end up being very lavish, supposedly in the name of the people, even as the people are increasingly impoverished and oppressed. The socialists say, oh, but we need to live, you know, if we're planning everything, if we're orchestrating everything, we need to live high on the hog. Yeah. So we have the resources to be able to distribute. And we have to, you know, keep some back, obviously, and enjoy from those stockpiles ourselves and for our families. And, you know, I mean, that's part of our service. That's that's what's due us. Don't buy it. It's a lie. It's not an original lie either. But in proportion to our having forgotten God, we are also vulnerable to these kinds of attacks, these kinds of manipulations, this kind of predatory behavior, this kind of grooming. I, for one, want there to be options for yogurt and orange juice and granola. I want there to be options. And I don't want somebody being highlighted as though this is very forward thinking, this is very pious, this is very moral for them to make an argument that essentially is a hop, skip, and a jump away from centralized decision-making, seizing the means of production, which ultimately ends up being you and I. Every kind of oppression follows close on the heels and even ushers in that system. We've seen it. It's not hypothetical. It's not theoretical. It's not speculative. It's a known fact. This is a known quantity. Everywhere socialism and communism is instituted, we see every kind of abuse, every kind of legal plunder, which is made legal. If the law is in the way, you just strike down all laws that say you can't plunder people and you enact new laws that demand everything be taken away from whoever would object. It might not be you right now. You may think you'll be on the winning end of it, but in the long run, you're actually all the poorer for it and all the more miserable. Just look to those who were early supporters of these kinds of ideas in Russia, in China, what ended up happening to them, even if they were very zealous in promoting. Look at China, for instance, and what Mao did to other leaders in the Communist Chinese Party as they became prominent to where they might potentially possibly be able to check and balance his ambitions, his actions, his prescriptions, what did he do? He destroyed them and their families very publicly. If you think that being a proponent will mean that you're spared, think again. Think again. These systems reward the most ruthless, the most Stalinesque, the most Hitlerian, They reward and protect and foster such men in the absence of a fear of God, in an absence 
of the love of God, and God will not be mocked. We will suffer the consequences. Every other people has suffered in this land as well. But the antidote is not to rail against material goods, material prosperity, as though that's the point. The point is the forgetting of God. So if you have material wealth and you have material prosperity, be content. Stop complaining about it. If other people around you have material wealth that you don't have, be careful lest what actually be communicated is covetousness and envy. You're not supposed to covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Anything. Not their house, not their car, not their business, not their bank account, not their 401k, anything that belongs to your neighbor. If they worked and earned, thank God that they have worked and earned and call them to be good stewards of what they've been blessed with and to honor God with what they have. Call them to be wise for their own sakes. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And work hard to provide for the members of your own household. That's what I'm called to. That's what you're called to. That's what we're called to. That's what that's what our aspirational model should be. Not enact socialism or sit idly by, sit quietly by without any kind of objection or counter. No, no, no. Call the socialists and the would-be aspiring socialists and the simple-minded who are being called in by the woman folly to believe that bread that is eaten in secret, stolen water is the sweetest. No, drink water from your own cistern. And if you don't have a cistern, work to get one. That's how it's done. That's what God calls us to. Now, just ever so briefly, I have a couple of items to bring to your attention before we get into Edward Fieser's article in Defense of Culture War over at Post-Liberal Order. One of them is a article published December 21st, 2020, by Annie Renault over at Upworthy titled, Yes, Biden won with only 16% of U.S. counties. No, that's not mathematically impossible. I'll put the link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go check it out. Go read through it. There are some good points that are made in this article. But let me just say briefly, something would appear to be broken in our way of doing politics and making decisions together. That's all politics really is. As a country, as a people, something's broken in our way of making decisions together. If Joe Biden won the 2020 election with only 16% of U.S. counties. And why I say that is actually very much along the lines of what Thomas Jefferson was concerned about. That if Americans congregated in the cities and gave up on rural life, farming, ranching, living out in the country... Americans would be more susceptible to tyranny and to despotism. Americans would be, in essence, less and less free as they were less and less self-sufficient, less independent. And briefly, a point that I want to make here for the Christians out there who maybe have a hard time knowing where to start and making sense of these things in light of God's word. Uh, The first thing I'll say is it's okay to live in a city. That's all right. If that's where God has brought you is to a city, then seek the welfare of that city to which Yahweh, your God, Yahweh, our God has brought you. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray for its peace. Do that. Yes. But at the same time, 
there's nothing biblical whatsoever about denigrating those who live in the country. Nothing whatsoever. And a few arguments just very briefly. One, the first people who are notified that Jesus has been born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem are shepherds. They're out in the pastures. These are rural folk, typically not seen as the best and the brightest of society. Jesus called fishermen, who also you could say are blue collar, more likely to be like your rural folks, like your farmers and ranchers. He called fishermen to come and be fishers of men. David, before he became king over Israel, was best known not just for killing Goliath, but actually having prepped to slay Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, by having been a shepherd, tending his father's flocks, which is to say David was a country boy. He was rural, and that's fine, and that's actually perhaps all for the best. When Samuel the prophet was sent to the household of Jesse because God was going to take the kingdom away from Saul and give the kingdom to someone else to be king over it. Jesse had all of his other sons except for David gathered together. And who was chosen? The one who was out in the country tending his father's flocks, protecting them from wild animals, from predators. What did that prep him for? Protecting Israel from predators. So also, think forward to the epistle to the church at Thessalonica, written by Paul, how he says we should aspire to live quiet lives, working with our hands, just as we were taught, just as we were shown to do, live quiet lives, minding our own affairs, working with our hands, so that we can be dependent on no one. So independent, self-sufficient, walking properly before outsiders is of a piece with that self-sufficiency, that independence. That is an aspirational model that not everybody is capable of realizing as fully as they might like. I, for instance, would rather live out in the country. I would rather be raising my children out in the country on at least a hobby farm with a garden and a greenhouse and pasture lands. I would rather live out in the country. I think that would be more ideal, actually, according to what Paul's writing in Thessalonians. As it is, we've been brought to the city of Greeley, Colorado. And I'm content with that. It's not always easy to be content with that. I have to learn to be content. I have to work at it and remind myself to be content because this is where God has brought us. But I'm content with that. And yet I look at this and I look at the media coverage of rural Americans. I look at the contempt, open contempt, that many Democrats in particular, but yes, even Republican establishment types openly hold for rural Americans. And I look at this Upworthy article from Annie Renault saying, yes, Biden won with only 16% of U.S. counties. And you know that those U.S. counties are metropolitan counties. Those are cities. The cities voted, or so the claim goes, for Joe Biden. And then how weak is this? No, that's not mathematically impossible. Yeah, but it's highly improbable, right? It's highly improbable, highly suspect. And even just the media coverage of the election cycle was fraudulent. 
the social media throttling of rural voices in particular, but more to the point, conservative voices in the 2020 election, that was fraud. The portrayal of conservative candidates and conservative voters and conservative American values was fraudulent. And we need to know that. We need to know that that is the case as Christians, that you don't look down on and hold in contempt by default people who live out in the country. That's not appropriate. That's not right. That's not in keeping with the whole counsel of God. In fact, what God said to Adam and Eve and then to Noah and his sons after him was, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God confused the languages at Babel to get the people who had congregated in this one city to spread out. The big idea was God wanted to fill the earth with his image bearers, not to get all clumped up in one city and to prove how smart and sophisticated and metropolitan they were. If you're brought to a city, serve God in the city, seek the welfare of the city to which you've been brought, by all means. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. But the flip side is, the flip side is, if God enables you to be a shepherd who lives out in the country, if he allows you to be a farmer, because there are plenty of farming analogies that Jesus gives that are offered elsewhere about reaping and sowing, if God enables you to be a farmer or a rancher or other people to be farmers or ranchers and to live out in the country, praise God. That's fantastic. If that's an aspirational model for you, you want to live out in the country, you want to raise livestock, you want to raise your own food, praise God. And I think what we should do actually, really, is encourage that. I think we should facilitate that. Far too much land, especially out West, is owned directly by the federal government. I think that's terrible. I think that's a terrible, terrible thing. It needs to be opened up for development by men and women, common citizens, not major corporations that happen to be owned by the friends and family of prominent politicians of both parties. No, no. Open it up for development by fathers and husbands, mothers and wives, children, common people. And I think what you will get if you do that, if you encourage that, if you foster that, if you facilitate that in this country, what you will get is more freedom, more decency, if it's coming from a place of wanting to do what Paul was talking about in the epistle to the Thessalonians. Going back to the business of urban versus rural, even perhaps, shall we say, that in-between zone, the suburbs, a Democrat lawmaker got a little bit worked up on this question of suburbanites here recently. And Dave Urbanski, that's funny, Dave Urbanski over at theblaze.com has brought this to our attention and we thank him for it. I am going to go ahead and play the audio for this. Now, be warned if you have kids present, there's some strong language here. There shouldn't be, not from a state senator speaking in an official capacity from the Senate floor. This is disgraceful. I'll just warn you on the front end. Maybe pause, resume later when kids are not around. But without further ado, here is the audio from the video posted to Twitter by Wisconsin conservative War Room. Cut to take a listen. Fuck the suburbs because they don't know a goddamn thing. 
about how life is in the city. Okay, so right there, right? Right there is a sentiment which is very clearly expressed in less explicit terms by Democrats and by many establishment Republicans in the U.S. these days. That sentiment that you just heard from Latonya Johnson, Democrat from Milwaukee's 6th District, that sentiment you just heard is very typical of the ruling class here in the U.S. But if that's true of their attitude towards the suburbs, how much more so is it true of their attitude towards rural Americans? There's a contempt, an open contempt in the kinds of decisions that are made, either without thinking about the implications for rural Americans or, again, with consideration, but a dismissive marginalization, mockery, scorn, and yes, contempt, open contempt in the most explicit cases. If the suburbs are out of touch with what it's like to live in the city, how much more so are rural Americans out of touch with what it's like to live in the city? But for that matter too, if you would say the suburbs are a better place to live than the cities, then shouldn't we want more suburbs? Shouldn't we want more growth of suburban America? For that matter too, if life in rural America is even more out of touch with the problems of the city, wouldn't we want there to be more life possible in rural America? Wouldn't we want that? Wouldn't that stand to reason? If life in the cities can be hard, brutal, difficult, challenging, maybe what is needed here is for the city folks to realize they really don't know what life is like in rural America. It's a two-way street. And I'll be the first to admit, I don't know what it's like to live in a big city like Denver, for instance. I don't know what that's like. And I, quite frankly, don't want to know. If I had the opportunity to move into downtown Denver, I would pass. Even living in Greeley is a stretch for us. It's a bit of a culture shock. But these senators, these congressmen, these governors and Yes, the president as well should be looking at what could be done to make it more doable, more attractive to live in the suburbs in rural America. They should be looking for ways to facilitate that and to incentivize that and to encourage that, particularly as the cities get harder to live in, more expensive. Make it cheaper to move out of the city and you will find that the city gets less expensive to live in as well. Make it easier for people who live, professionals who live in the cities to move out to the country and to do the work that they do remotely. If some people don't want to have so many choices when they go to the grocery store, maybe part of the answer needs to be facilitate them moving out of the city, out into the country, raising their own food. Just maybe. That could be a partial answer. Raise your own food and raise only what you want to eat instead of the hustle and bustle of picking a big box store. You know, maybe we would not have so many big box stores if we were making it easier for small businesses to foster alternatives. And maybe then you would complain, oh, there's so many stores to pick from. You know, just like you're complaining about going to one store that's got so many 
options for orange juice, you would complain about there are so many different stores that each sell one or two varieties of orange juice. But what we don't need is central planners saying the rural experience needs to revolve around the cities. The suburban experience needs to shut up. Whatever we do in the cities that filters out and harms the suburbs, shut up. No, that's a recipe for self-destruction as a country. And in contrast, we could have something much, much better if we were encouraging more Americans to move out to the country and be self-sufficient, be independent, mind their own affairs, know what their affairs are, that they would mind them, equip them, incentivize that, facilitate that, offer tax incentives. Also, I would say auction off these public lands. The public needs to have access to the public lands in a way that the public does not currently. As promised, though, we're going to dig into, in Defense of Culture War, a article by philosopher Edward Fezzer. He's a guest author here, publishing June 20th at Post-Liberal Order, arguing that wokeism cannot be defeated with economic or market solutions because it's not fighting an economic war, but a political, cultural, and religious one. Without further ado, having been teasing a treatment of this for several episodes now, I'm going to jump right in and read for you some extended passages from the beginning and from the end of this article, and then I have some thoughts to share. He starts out, and I quote, A specter is haunting American politics. The specter of economism, the materialist belief in the primacy of economic causes and solutions to all that ails our life together. It's a ghost we might have thought had been exercised. Despite inflation not seen since the 1970s and skyrocketing debt, cultural rather than economic issues have dominated politics in recent years. On the left, identity politics and abortion appear to trump all other concerns. On the right, alarm at woke excesses seems to be the prime motivator as illustrated by Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin's election victory. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' decisive re-election win and the grassroots boycotts against Bud Light and Target. Heated and ongoing debates over critical race theory, gender ideology, parental rights in education, the defund the police movement, cancel culture, and so on, have given the lie to the conventional wisdom that pocketbook issues are what ultimately matter to voters. But voices across the political spectrum bemoan this emphasis on culture war issues. The more fundamental problems, they insist, remain economic and anti-woke politics is misdirected. One hears this from some who one might have expected would welcome the backlash against woke extremism. For example, on Twitter recently, the British blue labor advocate Adrian Pabst opined that, quote, the culture wars are a distraction and arguably grow out of economic discontent, end quote. The American left Catholic Tony Annett concurred, averring that, quote, people just love culture war issues, but it's material conditions that matter, end quote. More recently still, former House Speaker Paul Ryan decried, quote, culture war politics, end quote, in favor of a focus on matters such as the debt crisis and poverty and upward mobility. Other examples could be cited, illustrating how the view that it's the economy stupid, in Bill Clinton advisor James Carville's famous phrase, 
a long-standing attitude in American politics on the right and left alike, remains influential today. It evinces an implicit economism, the thesis that economics is more fundamental to the social order than cultural or other factors. This is simply false. Wokeism is a destructive force which isn't reducible to economics and can never be defeated by economic solutions alone. Now, that's the first section, right? I'll stop right there. I'll stop right there. And let's just make sure we're processing what it is that he's saying to this point. And what I agree with, actually, is his pushback against the folks who say, don't get into the culture business. He's right. We have to talk about the culture. We have to talk about our religious principles. We have to talk about our religious faith and the freedom to live out privately, but also promulgate and proselytize. We have to talk about the imperative of being able to argue for a Christian worldview. We have to talk about that. We have to talk about the importance and the relevance of getting married and having kids. Getting married to a member of the opposite gender, staying married, having kids. How we educate those kids. Why we educate those kids. We have to talk about those things. The neglect of those matters is why we are here economically, after all. The economic situation is downstream of our political situation, and our political situation is downstream of our cultural situation. Our cultural situation is downstream of our theological situation. That's how it goes. That's the order of events. You develop or obtain or receive theology and your belief about God, your belief about man in relation to God informs the kind of culture you form in your home, in your community, in your church, in your business. That builds out into the culture of your state and then the nation. That culture is represented in who gets elected, who is running, who gets financial backing, who gets support in their campaigns, who gets the votes, and then who ultimately is said to have a mandate to pass laws or enforce laws or interpret laws. And downstream of that in our situation is the economic reality. But then in some sense, you can deal with some of these cultural issues by saying we're going to punish economically, financially, businesses that are promoting a bad theology or a bad culture. You can. And so it's both and, but it's in what order? That's very important. That's important to the author here, Edward Fieser. It's important to me. I'm in agreement with him thus far. He's right, ladies and gentlemen. He's right. And quite frankly, even the fact that we have prominent people who are saying Let's not get into the culture wars business. Let's only focus on the economy. That is a reflection of the kind of culture we have, which has gotten us to this point. The so-called conservatives in too many cases are only interested in conserving their 401ks and their bank accounts. They're only concerned with conserving their financial wherewithal. They're not concerned at all with using that wealth to build culture in a way that honors God. And they're not interested in sharing debate space in the public square 
with people who are making that their mission. As they see it, politics is where the big business interests, the wealthy, make the decisions for the people who apparently are not very wise and they're maybe not even very godly if they're as poor as they are, if they lack the material wealth. And I've seen this, right? I've seen this up close. I won't get into it too much, but I've seen preferential treatment in churches that we've been to down through the years across the U.S. I've seen it in my family. Certain members of the family are materially better off, very comfortable economically. And so what do other members of the family do when there's a decision that needs to be made together? They defer to and they just take the side of whatever those members of the family are wanting to do because, well, when you're rich, they think you really know, like Tevye says in If I Were a Rich Man, in The Fiddler on the Roof. And so also our political situation scaled up is representative of that being a all too common cultural distinctive here in America. If the donor class is not really all that conservative when it comes to the promotion of homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, queerness, and (laughs) before our very eyes, day by day, increasingly pedophilia, if they're not all that concerned about those things being promoted in the public schools, in public libraries, in children's programming, on TV, and in the movies, if they're not all that concerned about those things because all they care about really is their bank account and their 401k, and so they're donating to political candidates who then we will, in too many cases, just uncritically vote for and support based on how much money they've raised, based on how shiny and expensive looking their advertisements are. Well, in some sense, we're getting the as you sow, so shall you reap effects, where even if they're not for those woke initiatives, because they these donor class supposed conservatives, Republicans, because they're not willing to support candidates and voices who are opposed to the woke stuff, who wins by default? You know, it's just like when you go to watch a sporting event, say you're watching a soccer game or a football game or a basketball game or a baseball game, and the refs or the umpires or whoever, whoever's judging the game, if they only call fouls on one team, Odds are high, you're going to know going into it and all the way through who the winner is going to be. If the refs are only calling fouls on the home team or the away team, the away team or the home team that's not getting the fouls called on them is going to win. And that's what the donor class has been doing for Republicans for far too long. When it comes to cultural engagement, they call out conservatives who are holistically and consistently conservative, they call them out and they sideline them and they marginalize them and they starve them of resources. They wage a war of attrition within the primaries and within the local political scene until all that's left are the kinds of conservatives who are going to help secure the bottom line interest economically for the donor class. They want fiscal conservatives, maybe. But even if they're not all that conservative fiscally, economically, even if they're also for big government, that's okay as long as the donor class gets a bigger, fatter bank account and portfolio 
retirement fund at the end of the day. That's their interest. They're interested in conserving their wealth, their material wealth. And that's why they have no patience for the folks who are concerned about conserving the spiritual health of their children and their communities and the nation. And actually, if I were going to go a step farther and be even more severe with the donor class, I would say in far too many cases, the donor class sidelines and marginalizes those who are consistently conservative, holistically conservative in this country, because otherwise they themselves would be called out many times for not being conservative in their private lives, for not being upright and honest and godly and moral. And so what do they not want to do? The donor class, even for the supposed conservatives, for the Republicans in all too many cases, shuts up and shuts down conservatives who would also call them to correction. Culture war, so-called, can fix that to a point. At a certain point, to a certain point, paying attention to the formation of culture can fix that. And only a cultural shift can fix that. If the donor class makes the rules because they have the gold and that's the golden rule as they see it and we affirm that, we are actually contributing to a repeat of what happened in Russia where you had the ruling class that for centuries had benefited from the favor of the czars and had built up vast fortunes. And then you had the underclass, you had the serfs. And at a certain point, an intellectual sea change occurred where a lot of the aristocrats, a lot of their children anyways, started feeling bad about the serfs. And they started idolizing the serfs and saying, oh man, because they're poor, they are so much superior to us spiritually and morally. And we should maybe give in to the calls of the communists and the Marxists. Maybe we should contribute to the downfall of the czarist system. And to be fair, if you read Orlando Feige's A People's Tragedy, there were real abuses in the czarist system. There were real widespread pervasive injustices perpetrated by the aristocratic class against the serfs for a long, long time. It's just there was more that needed to be factored in than just that. And really, it should have been the church that was calling the czars and the aristocrats to repentance, and it should have been the church that was calling the communists to repentance and core to the failure of the Russian people to resist the siren song of communism was that the Eastern Orthodox Church just affirmed whatever the political status quo was, went along with it, embraced it, rubber stamped it. And if our church here in the U.S. wants to do likewise, we will have the same result. You'll get an anti-clerical sentiment that comes right along with, and I think we're already seeing some of this, it comes right along with the leftist agitation, the demand for socialism, the demand for communism. Why? Because in too many cases, the church is operating under the same premise that broader society is, that the political situation in the civil sphere is operating under. Family cultures and civil society and the church all alike have gotten too partial, too preferential towards those who have wealth. 
They have the gold, and so they make the rules. And it's actually explicitly forbidden that we do that. Old Testament and New Testament, God tells his people to not do that. And what are we doing? We're doing that. And then we try and spiritualize it, or we hide it, right? We make sure that's all backroom deals, but out in the open, you know what's driving what is said and what's not said based on who's cutting the big checks. He who pays the piper calls the tune. So this article about paying attention to culture is terribly, terribly important. What you need to understand is the folks who are only concerned with the economic, the material, they don't want culture being disrupted because that's part of the status quo. If anything is disrupted in this finely tuned machine that is making them wealthy and keeping them wealthy, that has made them influential and will keep them influential, if anything is adjusted, any of the knobs are turned, any of the switches are flipped, any of the buttons are pushed on this finely tuned machine called status quo that keeps them wealthy and influential, well, maybe they won't be wealthy or influential. And that's why they actually, they're not just ambivalent about culture war, they're hostile to it because it represents a threat to the status quo. If the status quo has been profitable to them, regardless of whether the status quo has run roughshod over everyone else, by golly, nothing should be done about it. Even the detente is profitable. And this is something you should look back in history to the 80s for in American history. Look at the conventional wisdom when Ronald Reagan ran for president and then was elected and then took office. As president of the United States, he made explicit his policy of we win, they lose regarding the Soviet Union. He called the Soviet Union the evil empire. He called the National Association of Evangelicals to stop with the moral equivalence between the U.S. and the Soviet Union explicitly to their faces with cameras rolling. He warned them that what C.S. Lewis said in the screw tape letters is applicable here. The greatest evils are done in rooms where sit soft-spoken, well-dressed men who are very polite and they don't need to raise their voices, but they make deals and they make concessions and they make compromises. That's where the most evil decisions are made. Not in back alleys where in a moment of passion, some desperate, deranged individual does something heinous. No, no. It's the very polite, very respectable folks who think they're the good people and who take for proof that they're the good people that they're doing so well, that they're doing well financially, economically. And what we shouldn't do is, again, with uh, don't just take the opposite and be simple mindset. We shouldn't say, ah, well, anytime somebody's wealthy and well off, therefore they are corrupt. That's what Garrett's saying. No, 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 no. Don't be partial to those who are wealthy also. Don't be partial against them. Don't assume that just because somebody's wealthy, that means they're good or wise or righteous. Also, don't assume that just because they're wealthy, that means they're corrupt and foolish and evil. We have to deal with the particulars, but we have to have a culture that demands and insists for the right reasons, driven by a love for God and a love for our neighbor. We have to have a culture that demands and insists and requires and normalizes impartiality towards the rich and the poor, towards the well-connected and also the new arrival. But 
for the sake of time, wrapping up here and encouraging you to read the rest of this article by Edward Fezzer, wrapping up, his last section is titled, How to Win a Defensive War Against Woke. And it reads as follows. I quote, The critics of wokeness are not wrong to associate it with Marxism because Marxism was indeed among its key influences, but it would be a serious mistake to identify wokeness with Marxism, not least because, unlike Marxism, it's not committed to economism. To give the devil his due, the wokester sees, as Marxism did not, that it is politics and culture rather than economics that is fundamental to understanding the social order. He shares at least that much with social scientists who have rediscovered the same insight in recent decades. The trouble is that woke culture is utterly destructive of social order. As I have argued elsewhere, it is best understood as a variation on political Gnosticism in Eric Vogelin's sense of the term. And toxic, moralistic, quasi-religious ideologies of this kind cannot effectively be countered except by a better alternative that addresses the same unmet human needs such ideologies claim to satisfy. Economic policy is extremely important, but it addresses human nature at too shallow a level to defeat the destructive forces that currently wield power. You cannot beat crude ideology except with sound philosophy. You cannot beat pseudo-morality except with authentic morality. You cannot beat false religion except with true religion. End quote. Now, briefly, just to put the last touch on my thoughts relative Edward Fazer in this article, I would say Marx and Engels also were more holistic. At Marxism, practically, every time it's been tried, it doesn't stop with the economy. And that's a fact. Marxism consistently persecutes Christians for this very reason. The Marxists care about marriage, and they care about the children, and they care about religion. They're not just concerned with economics. They also want the women in a community to be the community's women. That's true communism for the close student of Marx. They're not content with a father and a mother getting their child's daily bread from the state. They want that child to ultimately be seen as belonging to the state. That's culture. That's religion. So actually, to push back here a little bit, no, no. Marx and Engels, Marxism, communism, has never, ever, ever been only concerned with economics. Ultimately, the means of production is you and me. Not the factory, not the farm, you and me. And insofar as it's a totalitarian system, utterly and totally oppressive and controlling Nothing is allowed to exist outside of the purview and control and tinkering and monitoring and decision of the central planner. And what we need to understand is this woke business didn't come out of nowhere. This is a long time coming. Progressivism in the U.S. has been bringing this closer and closer. And now I would say in the 21st century, thanks to Bush having expanded the role of government under the guise of conservatism, but not really as a conservative, just a Republican, one of the donor class type Republicans, Obama radically overhauling the U.S. government and 
tinkering in state and local matters as well, trying to push this, trying to play community organizer, trying to realize the vision of Saul Alinsky, which ultimately was communism. Trump rattled their cage, but he also is the penultimate donor class Republican. He is. But he's like the donor class Republican who gets tired of the candidates being donated to not doing exactly as they're told, not saying exactly what they're told to say. He's going to roll up his sleeves and he's going to get in there and do it himself. But really, for a long time now, the donor class has been behind the scenes calling the tune. It's just Trump got impatient with waiting for somebody else. And that's why the knives came out for Donald Trump. Because the other donors who didn't want to run for president and didn't want to just clog the field with a whole bunch of billionaires all gunning for the same job, Donald Trump was cutting into them pursuing their bottom line, their economic interests with the power of the state, enacting legal plunder. But he didn't shrink the size of the U.S. government. He put some very much more conservative justices on the Supreme Court. We should be very glad about that. That's good. That's a happy thing. I think he would have done many more conservative things had he been in there longer. But here's the fact. At root, Fazer is right. And this goes back to the Ben-Hur quote. How do you fight an idea with another idea? How do you fight a false religion with true religion? How do you fight bad morality with good morality? How do you fight the woke business with true Christianity? Because you can't be woke and a Christian, not really truly. You can get deceived and sidelined for a time and maybe still you're a real Christian, but these two do not mix. The wokeness, the woke ideology does not mix with biblical theology, biblical anthropology, biblical epistemology. These things do not mix and you will have to, at a certain point, be corrected. And if you're not willing to be, well then you probably need to just put your money where your mouth is when you say everybody who disagrees with you about the woke stuff is maybe not even a Christian. If you're going to call conservative Christians heretics for rejecting your liberal theology, well, then maybe you just need to be put out of fellowship. It's a very consistently Christian approach to cultural engagement to be a conservative. In fact, that's where we get conservative political philosophy is the application of biblical theology and the principles of the Protestant Reformation to problems in the civil sphere. I say yes to culture war. And just as God gave the enemies of Israel into their hands and thrust them out, God can, if it pleases him, give our cultural enemies into our hands as well. We have to fight though. As much for their sake, if they may be persuadable, as much for their sake as for the sake of there would be victims, including us, including our children and our grandchildren after us. We have to take these things seriously. It's not just economics, but there is an economic component. And this is where I say again, as a last thought, we should be as much rewarding those who are doing what is good as we are seeking to punish Target and Bud Light. Reward those who are doing what is good and look for ways to incentivize young people getting married, having children, staying married, incentivize moving out to the country, having a farm, building your own house, owning your own home, being self-sufficient, 
let's look for ways to promote that and reward that and incentivize that. If we do, by God's grace, I believe we will be blessed. But these things have to be coming from a place of love for God and love for our neighbor in order to count. But that's all I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.